prayer for our roots of faith. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the, the history of your word, for the depths of the teachings that you've given to us. Bless us now as we're looking especially at the gifts that you've given to us in your sacrament. Help us to understand the right, what you have taught us, and how you continue to feed us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, briefly, see here, got my previously on roots of faith. We talked about the, the problem is becoming like tumbleweeds, and we need roots. We need that depth of soil of our faith. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. By faith, we trust in him. We cling to him. We've been talking about uh, the divine service, our liturgy, our service of worship, which conveys to us, not only delivers the goods to us, but also um, kind of trains us in a biblical worldview where we see it's not about us climbing up to the Lord, but instead, rather, it's about him coming down to us, that kind of inverted parabola where God in heaven, he makes the first move. He reaches down to us, and then we respond to him with prayer and praise, with lives of obedience and good works. That's not what starts the train. It's God's move toward us. So we said that um, out of that, then, we need that proper rhythm, that rhythm of receiving and responding, which you can see in this dance from this large football player. Oh, oh it didn't work this time. <laughs> we want to live in that rhythm of receiving and responding, receiving and responding. And now today, we're going to especially focus in that section of the service, the service of the sacrament and the gift of the Lord's Supper. Talk about what it is, why we celebrate it. And I put, well, it might sound like um, the, the quote up at the top, a little bit provocative, but uh, I think it's uh, appropriate. Flannery O'Connor, the great 20th century novelist and spiritual writer, speaking of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, she says, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> and what she's saying, if, if all we have is just a symbol, then she's like, what? She, I think she, she's being cheeky, but also kind of literal. Like, is there something more going on with the sacrament? That's what we're going to take up today. But before we do, Talk about one of my favorite things, leftovers. Mm. Show of hands, how great are leftovers, right? Like you love leftovers. Every day for lunch. It makes me so happy. You know, it used to be where I almost felt like when we would make dinner, it's like we were trying to get just the right amount. And it was, only, it was a few years in where I realized, no, that's ridiculous. Like you should be trying to make too much. Like you're already doing the work. Exactly. Why not have, have more of it? No, but then the problem is, Oh, uh, yeah, when he beats you to the punch. Yeah. Hey. No, no, that was dinner tonight. That was, yes, you can't do that. That's true. But are leftovers any less nourishing for being ordinary? No, of course not, right? Like, just because a, a meal hasn't been freshly prepared doesn't mean that it isn't nourishing. There's something about even the simple, ordinary meal of leftovers that can still be a blessing. When we talk about the Lord's Supper and this simple bread and wine. It seems very ordinary, like leftovers. And yet there's also an extraordinariness to it as well. An extraordinariness because of the Lord's presence and his promise that he is attached to it. And I'll go so far as to say that the ordinary part of it also in itself makes it more extraordinary because this is where the Lord wants to meet us, is precisely in the midst of our ordinary lives with ordinary stuff. That's how he wants to, to find us and to know us. So, 
There it is. They have an actual picture of it. We've got a, a paint by number of the famous Da Vinci one at, at my house. So uh, there's a great meme that went around a few years ago, like with Thanksgiving meals, how, you know, okay, we need a table for 12, actually a table for 24, because we're all sitting just on the one side. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the communion liturgy and what it teaches us about the Lord's Supper. And the best way to think about it, and so the service of the sacrament or the communion liturgy is roughly that point in the service. So after the sermon, and sometimes the creed comes right after it, other times it goes right to the prayers. Then after the prayers and the offering, then we get into the service of the sacrament, okay? Where it starts out with, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It's known as the preface. And that part of the liturgy goes back to some of the earliest days of the church, for sure to the third and fourth century, and perhaps even older than that. In the Latin, it's called the sursum corda, the lifting up of the hearts, where it literally just says, uh, the presider says, lift up your hearts, and the respondents say, hearts lifted. <laughs> That's what it simply says. Yes. Um, but it's all of that. And then there's the, the singing of the sanctus, holy, holy, holy. Um, and then there's the, the Agnus Dei, the, the words of institution. All of these things go into it, and it's kind of like a setting of the diamond. Okay? So the diamond is the actual body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine itself. That's the, that's the diamond. All of that other stuff, we don't have to have it, but it's just like with a diamond, it brings out its beauty with a, a proper setting. right? Um, so also that communion liturgy is meant to accentuate and bring out God's gifts. I mean, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Thanksgiving and, and maybe you're going to have people over. When you're having a, a lovely meal, what do you use for your, for your dishes? That's when you use what? The, the china, right? Such a pain. Well, right? So We just buy nicer. Yeah, okay, good enough. You get the chine. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> get the chine. So at least you get... The nice disposable stuff. It's not the same. Because, and like if you're drinking some wine, it just doesn't feel right to drink wine out of like a styrofoam cup, right? You need, there's something about the conveyance that it has to fit with the gift. So also when it comes to the communion liturgy. And what it's conveying to us is that we are encountering and receiving in some mysterious way the very body and blood of Jesus in, with, and under the bread and wine. So I've, I kind of structured the lesson today around these core questions. And this first question is, is precisely this. Is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper symbolically or sacramentally? And um, symbolic, that's easy enough to understand. So if something is, is symbolic, then it's like, well, this just is a pointer away to some spiritual reality. And there's plenty of Christians who believe that, that the, the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, it's nothing more than bread and wine. It's not even that good of bread and wine. And it's just kind of symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, as in our Lutheran confession, we would agree that it has a symbolic force to it, but it also has a sacramental side to it, which is to say that in some mysterious way, Jesus is present with the bread and wine. He's actually delivering his forgiveness. He's refreshing us in grace as we receive those gifts. Um, that word sacrament just means mystery. And that really kind of gets at the idea. 
that he is mysteriously present and our small catechism, Lutheran small catechism says, in, with, and under. So is that inviting us, you know, to kind of lift up the host or the bread? Like, Jesus, are you under there? Where is it? No, Luther's point, who, who wrote that and composed that, is just to say, Jesus is actually there. We don't know how. Okay. We're not quite sure how, how that fits. Now, um, there's different places we could go to, but let's go to maybe the most kind of forthright out of all of these in John chapter 6. Yeah. Would anyone like more coffee before I jump it? Anybody need to fill up before Marion dumps it? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Got your Bible. Open to John chapter 6. All right, and this is part of a longer, called the Bread of Life Discourse. I'm going to give you just kind of the, the latter part of it. Listen to what Jesus says, and then notice the reaction of those who heard it. So picking up at verse 52 of John 6. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, pause there. Like, you read that, and you can't help but get a little bit queasy. Like, what, Jesus? Eat your flesh, drink your blood. Like, he's just being, pulling no punches here. And try to put yourself in the position of a faithful, pious, Old Testament practicing Jew. As they hear that, what's their rea- what would your reaction be? Like, what would you be thinking as he's saying that? goes against everything you've been taught. Yeah. Don't touch the blood. Do, exactly. Don't touch the blood. Sir. Don't eat people. Like, that's one of the big ones. Yeah. That's up there, not down here. Yeah. Like, if it's the flesh, you can touch God. Like, he's real, he's tangible, he's in this room. Right. Up to that point, God's way more abstract. Yeah, good. So that now what Jesus is saying is, listen, I am that bread of life, that now God is no longer... Um, distant from you, but he has come down in me. Yeah. Right. And in consuming his flesh, you're admitting he's flesh. Sure. Like, you're saying to the world, I believe he came and he was flesh and blood. Right. And proclaiming that by taking of this. Right. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, what it says in in John chapter 1. So, Am I right? Like you're confessing that, like he's here. He's here. Yeah, for sure. And that he he was here, and that he is here. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think all of those. Rachel, you look like you're. Look. I've got a sheet for you. Um, That yes, that here he is present with them in flesh and blood, and you know, like Rachel's saying, going back to Leviticus. You shall not. You shall uh, eat the blood because the you know the life is in the blood. Says Leviticus 17. Now Jesus isn't disputing that, 
But what we are seeing now is that part of that prohibition from the Old Testament is that ultimately it was a pointer. The life is in the blood. And now we're seeing that fulfillment of it in Christ. He's saying he's giving his flesh and blood for the life of the world. Now, having said this, notice the reaction now. Picking up in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's like, ding, 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 ding. Yes, you're paying attention. Good. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe him and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, I find this instructive because Jesus lays it out there, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you've got no part in me. And Jesus is like, does this offend you? And they're like, what do you think, Jesus? Yeah, of course this offends us. And many of the disciples at that point walk away. Now, if Jesus meant his words merely symbolically, if he was just kind of talking metaphorically, what might he try to do at that point as they're walking away offended by what he had to say? He might be like, wait, you guys, you misunderstand. I was talking metaphorically. Come back, please. He doesn't do that. Instead, he, go, he doubles down. And he's like, yeah, actually, unless these words are spiritually discerned. You don't have that spirit. You're not going to be able to, to understand what I'm telling you. You're going to walk away. So be it. That, to me, is implicitly stating, like, he means business here. He means business when he says, as he will say at, with the institution of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus says... This is my body. He doesn't mean this isn't my body. Just to put it as, as starkly as possible. Or to quote from my guy Stanley, if this works, from The Office. That's worth seeing again, I think. Okay. When Jesus said, this is my body, he doesn't mean, this isn't my body. Stanley? Did I start? <laughs> oh. <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, Jesus doesn't stutter with this. Now, the natural next question is, how could this possibly be? Hold that thought. We'll get there in just a second. But before that, I, I do have a, a video clip that I want to share with you longer than that one, from our friends at Lutheran Satire. Um, Kenny, the sacramentarian kindergartner, okay? And sacramentarian was, well, it's, I think it's going to say it in the video, but those, this is the folks who, at the time of the Reformation, just said, no, we don't believe in all of this kind of hocus-pocus sacrament stuff. Like, it's all just symbolic and memorial. There's no real substance to it. And so um, this video kind of means poke fun at that, if it works. Yeah, sacramentarian. Reformation-era Protestant who believed that Christ was only spiritually, not physically present in the sacrament of the altar, or talking about the Lord's Supper. It's a little bit slow sometimes. 
again. Repeat after me. This is an apple. This represents an apple. This is an apple. This symbol represents an apple. This is an apple. Is an apple. This symbol merely represents the true apple, which is enthroned in the produce section at your local grocery store and can only be eaten in a spiritual sense. Once you have chosen to apply for a Kroger Plus card. Why won't you just take my words at face value? Because that's what the Catholic kid who sits across from me does. And I hate that kid. Unbelievable. All right. Uh, <laughs> the sacramentarian kindergarten. Just getting at this point, like of, of taking Jesus at his word. Another way to get at that is to say, okay, would we rather take Jesus seriously with that? <clears throat> Let me not use the word seriously. Would I, would I rather take Jesus at face value when he says, this is my body and blood, and be wrong, and at, you know, on the last day say, oh, Jesus, we just, you know, I took your word seriously when you said that. Or would we rather be in a position where it's like, the, you know, our whole lives long, we're like, oh, Lord's Supper doesn't really matter. It's just a symbol. You know, take it or leave it. And Jesus is like, why didn't I gave you this gift? Why didn't you receive it the way I wanted to? Well, because I just thought that you were just kind of like not serious about it. Literally. Yeah. Like literally. Like literally. Um, I, that's another way to kind of have a perspective on it. Okay. But then the natural question then is, how can this be? Because you might be thinking, so wait a second, Lutherans are just the same as Catholics on this because I know Catholics kind of have their own view on the Lord's Supper. And no, but I'll show you the distinction is not quite in the way that you might have thought in the, in the place that you thought. What do Catholics think? Yes, good. So um, let's see here. I need, I need my whiteboard. I feel powerless without my whiteboard. I don't know much about Catholics. Don't know much about Catholics. <laughs> okay, so when we're talking about the teaching of the Lord's Supper, so say perspectives on Eucharist. And again, there's like six different names that we use for the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Eucharist, Sacrament of the Altar, the Mass. All of these are referring to the, the same thing. Jesus, Jesus' body and blood. Okay? So on the one hand, you have... Um, maybe I'd put a, an, almost like a spectrum in some ways, although it's a little bit misleading, but you have the, the symbolic um, over here where you, know, you have a, a lot of Protestants where this is, it's merely, um, it just symbolizes memori memorial meal is what you'll often hear, okay? That it's a memorial meal, okay? Um, then on the other hand, you have a sacramental perspective, Okay? Sacramental is, is the, the phrase that's often used is real presence. And it's capitalized to show that we mean business. Or it might be because there's a lot of Germans among Lutherans and they always capitalize nouns, which is just real. Um, so that, you know, a, a real presence, a sacramental understanding that there's a union between body and blood. And then in between, and I would, I mean, Lutherans would be over here as well as, as Catholics, um, Orthodox, and um, 
some Anglicans too. So what about Anglicans? Uh, yeah, I would say, I would say um, some, some Anglicans, probably not all. Um, just kind of the nature of Anglican and uh, Episcopalian faith is they tend to be a little bit more, um, they don't view your view of the Lord's Supper as kind of an essential tenet, and so some will believe in it, some won't. And then in the middle here, you've got Christians of, of various stripes, different Protestants, basically. Um, so, but in, in terms of the nuances of that Catholic belief and how it is distinguished from the Lutheran belief, I'll get to that in just a second, um, because there's a, a key point to be made. And to get there, let's go to Luke chapter 1. And the uh, annunciation to Mary from the angel. I want to read verses 26 through 38. Can you volunteer to read? Yeah, thanks, Charlie. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, thank you. So this might seem like, oh, what, how does this have anything to do with the Eucharist, with the Lord's Supper? This is about Mary and conceiving the, the Lord Jesus in her womb. But when it comes down to it, it's very much the same question, which is how can finite human means contain the infinite God? This is what she's asking. It's the question that we're asking too. When we talk about the Lord's Supper and how Jesus is able to be present in some sacramental, mysterious way in these simple human means of bread and wine, it's not unlike the question that that, uh, Mary's asking too and wondering, how is this possible? But her response and her reaction are so significant and that's what we want to model and to emulate as well. We want to say... All right, that's enough. Um, actually, not a huge Beatles fan, but I think that song is about Mary, isn't it? Maybe. In any case, let it be to me according to your word. What Mary does is she recognizes it's not her job to figure out the how. She does not have to be the mechanic, the engineer. She doesn't have to be the fix-it person that says, okay, well, I'm going to need to understand exactly how it's possible that the infinite God can be in this finite She's just like, okay, you made this promise, blows my mind, don't totally get it, but I'm going to believe it. And so our call as Christians, or for I would say a much smaller, smaller ask and smaller task from the Lord, is to be like Mary in this respect, and not like my guy Tim the Toolman Taylor. Uh, 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 uh. We don't all... <laughs> 
know. Is that aged well, Chip? That's no. Okay. Um, we're all too young. Yeah, no, these guys, no, we, we're of the generation here. These guys, um, we're not, we don't have to like kind of get under the hood, so to speak, of the sacrament and figure out how does this work? What's that? Soup it up. Soup it up or soup it up, that too. I'll tell you the weird analogy on the time for that later. Okay. Um, and it's funny because there have been skeptics in recent years who have even taken this to like an ad absurdum kind of point of view where there was a guy who he snuck in to a church and he took one of the hosts and he was a scientist guy. And uh, put it underneath a microscope. He's like, I looked, there's no Jesus in there. And it's like, really, dude, are you that hard headed? Like, this is not how these things work. But where. I think there's an understandable misconception is when we get to this point, this, Linda, is where the, the distinction between Lutherans and Catholics in particular really comes out on the Lord's Supper. It's not unbelieving in the real presence. Both Lutherans and Catholics believe that Jesus is really present in, with, and under the bread and wine. The difference is that Catholics um, will dogmatically, I mean that word uh, literally, uh, insist on a theory of how Jesus is present known as transubstanti, so long I need two lines for it. Transubstantiation, have you ever heard that term? Okay, yeah, another one, you just kind of drop sometimes at the cocktail party, so think about transubstantiation. That's also in a Beatles song, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, exactly. Transubstantiation. So this is a theory based on Aristotelian metaphysics from Aristotle of how it's possible that Jesus could be present uh, in with and under the, the bread and wine. To go more than you need to know, in the Middle Ages, there was, um, Aristotle got really popular, especially thanks to St. Thomas Aquinas. There was a recovery of Aristotle's teachings. And so there, it was just like, how can we apply this? There, there's so much nice um, kind of hand in hand of what Aristotle believed about the world, about Christian teaching. And so Aristotelian, I just like to use that word, that's the adjective based on Aristotle. Aristotelian uh, categories were then kind of applied to Christian beliefs. So it was like, okay, we have got this hammer of Aristotle's categories of forms and substances, and now we're just going to start hitting everything with it. Like, okay, let's look at the Lord's Supper, Jesus' body and blood. How can we explain that, make sense of it using those categories? Um, sometimes it'll be said that, oh, Lutherans don't believe in transubstantiation, they believe in consubstantiation. And that's kind of misleading because our point is not we reject this particular take on your theoretical construct, your Aristotelian construct. It's rather that we just don't approach it the same way. We're not trying to be um, you know, engineers, philosophers to make sense of how Jesus is present. We're trying to follow in the footsteps of Mary, ironically, um, in this respect, of like, we just are saying, let it be to me according to your word. Does that make sense? See the distinction so there? So they believe it actually does. It transforms. Into the yes. And so and that, and that leads to some um, problems. We would say that the, the bread and wine remain bread and wine, but that Jesus is also present there in a way that we can't understand in with another, so that we, we say, well, actually, I, there's, a, there's a, a point that follows along from that that helps to clarify. I'll get there in just a second. Um, but when you, you really push too hard on this kind of transubstantiation thing, it can lead you into some, 
I would say some weird kind of piety and practices so that within Catholicism, there's been, for instance, the festival of Corpus Christi, also a town in Texas, I guess. Um, um, that means body of Christ, or Corpus Christi. They would take the body of Christ in the sacrament and they put it in a monstrance or um, a thing to be kind of um, uh, adored, admired, worshipped, and paraded through the streets. Mm -hmm. And still in Catholic churches today, there will be the adoration of the Mass where it's just the elements are just kind of laid up and people can go and just kind of adore Jesus in that way. Now, what um, I, I think that that is a misapplication of the belief of Jesus' um, presence there. Luther would say, Jesus says, take and eat. He doesn't say, take and pin up over your door and use as a talisman. Okay? This, is all, this is why um, there's the, some people do the practice. We don't have many folks that do it in our church, but where they receive the, the host on their tongue, you know, hands behind the back, receive their host on the tongue, and it's viewed nowadays as a, just a very kind of pious sort of thing, and I suppose it is. Um, but it started because too many Christians in the Middle Ages were coming at their faith in a very sort of superstitious sort of way. And so if you were, and you're like, okay, there's this kind of magical bread, what might you try to do with it? Save it and Save make it, it an idol. And make it an idol. A relic. Like, this is what people would do. So priests were seeing, like, Christians, were, the hoi polloi, mm -hmm. common Christians were, like, taking it, putting it up over their door, treating it as though it was, like, to ward off evil spirits and stuff. Okay? So it's like, all right, we've got a solution for this. Just open your mouth, we're going to stick it directly in your mouth. So you can't sneak it into your pocket, right? Um, I make Chip do that because actually I caught him doing the same thing a couple of years ago. You know, so. Isn't that why they, they, some people don't take the, the wine too? Because there was a fear of spilling it. Fear of spilling so it. They, just the priest would drink the wine. Right, right. That's your alcoholic priest. But anyways, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the, the rationale was like, well, the body surely includes blood as well. It's like, right. well, okay. Do, do the Catholics, um, is it just the priest that now it, it, will, it will be used. But this was an issue in, in the Middle Ages. At the time of the Reformation, only the priests would, would have the wine. They oh. still take spilling it very seriously, though. Yeah. Well, and, and there, are, the there are people who attend this church who are Catholic who come and will not take the, the uh, wine, like in the summer. Oh, yeah. Tourists who are, who are coming here. But, yeah. It's a deep ingrained. We yeah. went to an Orthodox service many years ago where if, if you so go. The priest puts the robe up, so if it spills, it goes in the priest's robe, but if yeah. it actually spills on yours, they come and they cut it off your clothing. Whoa! Yeah. Interesting. Take the piece of clothing off. Yes, yeah. right. That's, that's, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Yeah, so. Not your, not your dad. Yeah, right. You've got Christ on you, now. you Yeah, we're taking that back. back. Yes. Um, wow, that's so interesting. I mean, so this is where it's like, and the, the line here is, is, maybe it's not too fine, but it is, on the one hand, it's like we want to exercise proper reverence and respect the elements. So let me give you an example of how we practice reverence here in this church and in other Lutheran churches. So um, we use the individual cups, okay? But those individual cups, we don't just toss them in the trash. What we do, and it's extra work for our altar guild, but here's what we do at the end of every week's worship service. They take all of those cups, they rinse out all of the cups in a big basin, Okay? So they rinse all of, of the residual wine that's in there. And then, having done that, they'll take that basin, all of all of the, the, the wine, blood-filled water, and they'll go outside and they'll pour it, return it to the earth. Some churches will even have a fancy sink known as a piscina. And the piscina goes directly into the earth. Uh, yeah, is that what it's called? Um, so, 
around here to talk drywall. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the, if you don't have that, like we don't have it here, you just you pour it out to the earth. Rather than just treating those elements, even though now it's, we're not being used in the supper, still there's like, it was consecrated, set aside for a special sacred purpose. We don't want to just treat it like anything else. And still, like the, the bread, the host that's been used, we'll keep that separate from the unconsecrated host, and I will take it and use it for visiting homebound members, or we'll set it aside and use it for the next um, communion service. And so we have that, that sense of, of reverence. We don't want to just treat it disposably. But on the other hand, neither are we taking it and parading it in the streets, I mean, because that's where it leads to a kind of idolatry. I'm just laughing because of history, because of what yeah. I know about history and when they would build churches and they would take relics out on right. tour to get money and just the pagan beliefs that are tied into so much. It is. And I saw this, for instance, in um, some mission trips to Haiti, where in Haiti, um, Catholicism came in there and it didn't necessarily go down to the roots to um, you know, uproot some of the traditional, more superstitious we would say, or, or pagan beliefs, but instead kind of whitewashed it and overlaid some Christianity on top of it. And so there would be alongside these quasi-Christian beliefs, but like Jesus symbolized a voodoo god to them. And it would be like, oh, well, we got them worshiping Jesus. Now, they happen to think that Jesus is like this voodoo guy, but, you know, you can't win them all, right? Uh, it's like, oh, that's not great. Um, you need to go down to the, the deep roots. There was uh, Boniface was a, an early um, church uh, father, pastor, leader, missionary, and he actually went in, this was in what's now known as Germany, some part of it, and they had their pegging trees, and he actually just went into town and chopped the tree down, right? Like, boom, that's the kind of missionary you got to be. We're just going in chopping trees down. It's maybe not the best uh, so approach. Can't tear mine, just pour the blood over it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, so and this, uh, the, it's, we live, we live in, that, in that middle then, right, of, of that reverence and respect, but we're called to be believers, not mechanics, so to speak. Does that make sense? Like we're, just, we're trusting that word without necessarily understanding or having to explain away how is it possible. I don't know, but I believe it. Like so many things about our faith. It says here, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. That's exactly right. Finitum capax infiniti. The finite is capable of the infinite. And that was a big sticking point at the time of the Reformation, not between Lutherans and Catholics, but between Lutherans and other Protestants, um, especially this guy Zwingli. Uh, so Ulrich Zwingli, he did not believe in the real presence. Is that, how, is that how he said his own name? Probably, yeah. You see a picture of him. My name is Ulrich Zwingli. Um, the story goes that uh, Zwingli and Luther kind of had a face-off, like John Travolta and Nicholas Cage. No. Uh, but they came, they came together, and Luther, in typical kind of Luther and Lutheran fashion, Zwingli's going on and on about how explaining away the Lord's Supper, and Luther goes back into like Stanley mode, like, did he stutter? And supposedly, like, he carved into the, the table, est, Latin for is. He's like, is, Ulrich, is, we'll see. Uh, and so it goes. Uh, all right, so then question that drills down on this point even more. What does an unbeliever who communes receive? So if somebody comes, just to, to give you an outrageous scenario, um, somebody comes up, it's, it's Christmas time, and um, their part is you've got a distant cousin, you know, Jeff's got his distant Buddhist cousin, all right? 
down the city, what can you do? And comes up, and he comes to church because, well, it's a nice thing to do, just kind of a, a family thing. And we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, okay? And so your Buddhist cousin uh, doesn't want to make a scene or whatever, like, oh, they're having the Lord's Supper. I guess I'm supposed to do this too. Everybody else is just kind of going up. And, and your, your Buddhist cousin Sally, she goes up as well, and she takes the sacrament too. What does she receive? Does she receive, did I put it on here? Does she receive Jesus' body and blood? Does she receive just bread and wine? Or something else altogether? What do you think? It's kind of a tricky question. It's like, it seems like it would, for her, it would just be what's here on earth because she doesn't believe in what. So she would, so she would just have she, the, the earthly she side. She doesn't have the faith. Not having the faith to believe in the, the spiritual side. Good. What were you saying, John? Food poisoning. Food poisoning. Yeah, that's right. Door number three. <laughs> well, depending on your perspective, she might be eating and drinking judgment on herself. Yeah. Okay. So, good. And this is kind of where we're going. So, go to, I'm gonna, I want to go to Old Testament and keep me with our Bible study today. Let's draw on some Old Testament kind of precursors. Second Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel 6. And uh, can I get a volunteer to read, John? Would you read? Oh, sorry, that's not a volunteer. Volunteer. I'm married. 2 Samuel 6, uh, verses 5 through, uh, read verses 5 through 8. Okay. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and, and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon and Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of the Ark of God and took hold of it, um, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against how do you say that? Uzzah. Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. He died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. You can look at it on Google Earth. Um, so, why this story is instructive. First of all, you kind of need a little bit of context on the Ark. It's talking about the Ark here. Ark of the Covenant. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? What is, what is that for in the Old Testament? It's the actual presence of God. It's the Holy of Holies. It's God's located presence as the mercy seat on top of it. Or the, uh, This is where the forgiveness of sins would actually happen. And, I mean, again, if you've watched Indiana Jones, you know what happens when you open up the Ark of the Covenant. Like, actually, we could have just probably watched that scene too because it's, it's making the same point. Because what happens here with Poor Uzzah is that even though like he has good intentions, he reaches out, but guess what? The ark, this is God's holy presence. Can sinful human beings come into presence with the holy God? No. What's gonna happen is boom, you dead, Uzzah. Like, sorry, dude. Like your your nice thoughts aren't going to protect you. Likewise, if you get some Nazis and they open up the Ark of the Covenant, no matter how nice those Nazis might happen to be, and there's not a lot of nice ones, then they're getting their faces burned off, right? That's the way, that's the way it goes. Um, <laughs> the are that's, lost. The that's, the fear, that's the fear of the Lord right there. Recognizing the holy presence of the Savior. Now, what does this have to do then with the Lord's Supper? We're talking about that there is an objective presence of the Lord in it. And to use a um, medical analogy, which is above my pay grade, so you guys can correct me if I'm misusing this. Um, but I've thought about it in terms of like Ritalin, okay? So 
What kind of kids is Ritalin typically, you know, prescribed to? If they've got what? ADHD. ADHD, right? Okay, and the idea is you take Ritalin and then it's going to do what? Kind of chill you out, right? It's going to calm you down. But my understanding is if you don't have ADHD and you start taking Ritalin, what is it going to do to you? It stimulates. It's going to give you the opposite, basically speed at that point, right? Um, so depending on your subjective state, the objective reality of the medicine is going to have a different effect. I use that as an analogy thinking about the Lord's Supper. So we have the objective presence of Jesus' body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine. Subjectively, your state might be different. What changes isn't what you actually receive. What changes is the effect that it has on you. So this was alluded to already, Charlie did, from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's like, whoa, this is, he's not joking around here, right? What this is underscoring is that Christ is present objectively, not merely subjectively. So to circle back to that question about uh, Jeff's Buddhist cousin Susie coming up and receiving, you know, coming up for the sacrament to receive it, what does she get? She gets Jesus' body and blood. But... It might not be for her blessing, but rather for her discipline. Now, that reading from 1 Corinthians, um, what it's saying, I, it gets kind of mistranslated. The idea isn't condemnation, that you're being condemned as a result of it, but there might be some kind of almost a, a spiritual discipline, a chastising that comes a as a result of that. What does that look like? I mean, Paul alludes to people dying as a result of it. I, I can't speak to that. But I, it, what it is saying, at the very least, is we ought to take seriously coming to receive Jesus' body and blood. Yeah, come to receive the, the sacrament. Now, this is where then... Uh, go ahead, Chip. Uh, I, I've, I've known Christians who interpret this as, like, if I'm not, like, in a good mood spiritually, right. or if I'm not feeling right with the Lord, that they abstain from the Eucharist. They right. Like, they have to be of right mind going up to it. Or, conversely, understanding enough of what's going up there. Yes. And, then, and then I've had staff at the camp say, well, you know, I have an issue with my brother, so, or I'm, you know, so they don't take the Eucharist. And right. I'm like, I don't think that's what this is all about. No, that, exactly. And that kind of inverts it. Um, that medicine analogy, if I can push that a little bit further, although this is in keeping with Christian tradition, one way that the Lord's Supper has been described is that it's the medicine of immortality. I love that. It goes back to that reading from John 6, too. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It's the medicine of immortality. Now, that being said, who needs medicine? Those who are sick, right? It's precisely those. That's why it's so unfortunate when somebody's like, oh, I'm just not sure that I'm you know, righteous enough to get Jesus' body and blood. It's like saying, I'm not sure that I'm sick enough in order to take medicine. It's like, no, you're misunderstanding. I mean, and I would connect here to Jesus' words that we've looked at earlier in Roots of Faith uh, when he says, I, like with the call of Matthew, I didn't come, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come for the, um, the righteous, but sinners. Um, and so 
what then distinguishes, what's the distinction that's being made? I really appreciate the simple way that Luther explains this in the small catechism. Because he, he asks this question, who receives this sacrament worthily? Okay, so who, who, who should be up there? He says, well, first he says, fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. There, this was a pious practice, is that you would fast until you received the sacrament. Break fast, right? You're not, eat, you're not eating until the first thing you eat on the Lord's Day is Jesus' body and blood. He's like, that's a good, pious practice. But he says, that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's it. Um, but he says, anyone who doesn't believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. For the words for you require all hearts to believe. So it's not a matter of how great is my faith or, or even, which I think is a, a common temptation, especially among Lutherans, like how well do I understand this doctrine? Like, guys, no, you, we come with faith like a child. Actually, the better that you can just look at it and be like, there's Jesus, I believe. Like I see it with kids many times. Kids, when they come up and they're like, it's Jesus, I believe it. And in our, within our traditions, a whole other thing, we don't tend to commune like little, little kids. But sometimes I really wonder, I'm like, they probably get this better than the rest of us, honestly. But it gets back to like uh, that you know, repentant heart to really trust in it. That's, a, that's a, a discussion for another day. But the bottom line is what makes us worthy is simply and solely his promise and that we trust him. That, uh, there's an old hymn that says, all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. That's it. So, but if somebody doesn't feel that, doesn't believe that, says, no, I don't, mumbo jumbo, to take then the body and blood of the Lord is to invite that kind of discipline from the Lord. So it, it can be a hard, a hard word in, in some respects, but it's one that we take seriously. Questions or thoughts on that? It's a big, it's a big matzo ball just put out there. But I do find it somewhat interesting because our my tradition anyway in the Christian Reformed Church uh, is that we typically have a closed table. Yes, right. Uh, and I, I do find it interesting that and the Catholics obviously do as well. Right. From that perspective, I, I thought it was interesting when we started attending here that I don't know if this is more unique to this church or if that's Missouri Senate or what have you, but it was open. Well, yes and no. Mostly open. Yeah, ex well, so it's, it's really, I think a lot of it comes down to how do you define what it, what does it mean to be closed? So, for instance, like um, we would say here at our congregation, like all baptized, only baptized believers um, should be receiving the body and blood of the Lord. Now, there's other um, LCMS Lutherans who will be more, um, uh, what would you say, more strict. Restrictive. Yeah, more restrictive, and that it's only people who are, you know, LC LCMS members. And I get that. It's try I think it. Um, at its best, you know, being charitable about it, it's trying, it's for the sake of, you know, those who are coming to receive. But I think in practice, what it ends up doing is just restricting people from receiving Jesus' body and blood uh, who, who desire it and want to receive it. I agree. I just thought it was interesting. Yes. Our, our perspective historically is, well, we don't want to participate in people drinking judgment on themselves. Yes, right. So to speak. <laughs> no, 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 no. Exactly. <laughs> and it can... That, yeah. I, I do think it's overly restrictive. I think, it, I think it becomes overly restrictive and it kind of, it, it misses the point in some ways. Like, and what I've found more often than not, honestly, are that those who couldn't or shouldn't be receiving self-select out. Like when we're forthright about what we believe about it, people are like, so you believe that you get Jesus body and blood with bread. You know, I'm going to pass on this one. That's cool. Like you guys, I'll just sit here. <laughs> I think you got to present it like Jesus did. Like, this is my body. Yeah. Someone else's flesh. I and, should just be then, that, like, and, really. And then, like, 
let them decide. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, they don't believe in Jesus. They're gonna be queasy. Right. They are gonna step up. <laughs> and but you know, for for me and and in my pastoral practice, like when there are folks who, um, who I, if I don't recognize you, or don't know you, like I'll, I'll follow up and be like, hey, you know, where are you coming from? Like, commune with us today. Um, some guys say that's too loosey goosey, and like you really should be the the phrase which I don't care for, but they'll use is you got to fence the rail. You got to fence the rail, and like don't let people come up if you don't know them. Which there's practical challenges with that. Like if you're getting any number of visitors or guests, which like if you're too hardcore about that, you're probably not. Um, but like if if you are, um, like how are you putting people through the paces? Like I get it. It's it's not an easy it's not an easy question. But I think in many respects, I'll tend to err on the side of grace with this and say like we want to be faithful with this administration. We're called to be stewards. But like Pastor Newton, if he were here, he, what he will always say is like, it's the Lord's Supper, it's not our supper, right? It's your job to lead to the correct water, it's their choice to drink it. That's right, yep. So, and I think the, in our bulletin, do we have a statement in there? Yeah, we do. Yeah. And so that, that, that's the way, because with having, especially, alluded to, we have so many visitors, like especially in the summer, that like became really just logistically really difficult to be like, every person has to meet with a passionate elder before they step up there while they're on vacation with their grandma right. in Arcadia. <laughs> You know, you know, it's just like, you know, so that was a way to, to like do that. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to, to totally punt on it and, and be like, cause I would feel like derelict in duty if I was saying, well, I can't do, you know, all these things because there's, there's too many people. Like you still have a responsibility to be faithful with it, but it's recognizing like, you know, putting out, here's what we believe. And I guess putting it more, and this is a good Lutheran perspective, leaving it more to the conscience of the believer rather than like me, pastor, who doesn't know you or where you're coming from or what you need, being like, yeah, you're in, you're out. Like, I don't feel like I need to be a bouncer for the Lord, but instead to be a good shepherd. Like you say, I want to lead you beside still waters. I don't want to like elbow you out of the way. Get in there. <laughs> so. Well, so I was, um, in a Lutheran, I was brought up Lutheran. I've gone to Lutheran churches like I think it was ELCA and all this. And then I moved here, and I always walked by this church. And then my sister's in-laws were um, Missouri Synod in Iowa. And they would come up here, and they said, you can't go to that church. They won't let you take communion. So I would always walk by this church, and I'd want to come here, but I knew I wasn't welcome. So I'd be driving into Frankfurt, and I wanted to come here because it was so close to my house, but I knew I wasn't welcome. And then finally, my sister and I just came here, and I'd be looking at the bulletin, and I'd go, there's nothing that says I can't take communion, Cindy. And then I get on your website and I look and I go, there's nothing that says I can't take communion. So we sat here one Sunday, it was before you came, and we sat here one Sunday and I'm going, Cindy, there's nothing that says I can't take communion. And then the usher came by and I said, can I take communion? And he says, there, he says I'm not gonna say you can't. So I said, well, I'm going to do it. And Cindy goes, I'm not. And so I got up and I took communion and I sat down and I said, What a rebel. I said, I said I'm still living. And I said, I haven't been struck down. And she looked at me and I said, no one said I couldn't. And then Carla, we, it was at the end of the service and I said to Carla and Cindy and I said, okay, what's going on here? And she said, we're an open, open church. And she explained that this church was a different Missouri Synod and we were welcome to take it. And then from that day on, we came to this church. But I said, it's kind of sad that Missouri Synod 
is got this reputation, yeah. and she explained, you know, why you were different. And I said, gosh, for years I've walked by this church, and I've wanted to come here, and been missing out. I missed out, you yeah. know, and I lived just a few blocks away. Right. And I never tried. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. how many people are like that? Sure. Like me, I grew up I was... in a Lutheran church, and I wanted to come here so bad. Right. Um, so it's kind of sad. Yeah, I, I mean, as Christians generally, as Lutherans in particular, we want to be hospitable. We want not to be looking for opportunities and avenues in which we can be ex excluding. We want to be faithful with God's gifts, yes, always. But at the same time, welcoming and putting forward that, that foot of, of grace and of, of welcome, of the Lord's welcome. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to cast aspersions on uh, other fellow Lutherans, and I encourage you, if you visit another church, be respectful of their practice because they're all, I mean, you go to a Catholic church or Orthodox church, you don't you know, just storm it and say, and, and they will be, Orthodox in particular, are going to be, you'll go to some Catholic churches and they'll have different practices. But you go to Orthodox church, like, you're not just going to show up and, and take communion. It's not, it's not going to work that way. Um, so... Christians are trying to navigate that, but I, I do think recognizing that fundamentally it's about, you know, those who are baptized, part of God's family, trust and want that medicine, receive it, like, let them receive it. So, anyway, there's a good soapbox for you. That's good. All right, so then finally, let's bring this home. You are what you eat. There's that expression. It's not usually applied when it comes to our faith, but what does this mean when it comes to our, our Christian faith? You might think of it like this. We receive the body of Christ in order to be the body of Christ. And this is where I think our, our robust confession of the Lord's Supper does, it doesn't work against a sense of, of mission and outreach, but rather supplements it and bolsters it. Because believing that we really receive Jesus' body and blood, we are what we eat, right? We, we, we receive his body to be his body out in the world, out in the neighborhood. That's the goal. That's the, the aim for us as believers, as he's building us up, as those who belong to him. There was, frankly, kind of a cheesy Christian song that came out a few years ago, but it was right in this respect. It was like, if we are the body, why aren't these arms reaching? You guys remember that song? Yeah. It was kind of hectoring. It was sort of like, I don't know. The whole idea was like, if you're the body of Christ, you should be reaching out and this kind of thing. So It's very DC it was, yeah. The message wasn't terrible, the, the delivery. I think you missed your calling. Good. I, I know, right? I should be a contemporary well, Christian. Church karaoke. Church karaoke. A new thing you start off I'm here for it. Um, but what it, what it did capture is that, like, yes, as the body of Christ, filled with the spirit of Christ, we're going to do the kind of things that Jesus does. We're going to show compassion to those who are in need. We're going to seek out um, those who are lost. That, that's just, it's a natural given of, of what we are and of who we are. Go to 1 John chapter 1, which gets at this kind of koinonia, is the great Greek word for this, and how it fits together. That's fine. It's always weird. That's right. <laughs> So 1 John 1, not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John. Uh, he starts out, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the word there for fellowship, I always think it's kind of a weak translation. It's this Greek word koinonia, beautiful Greek word, um, which is otherwise translated as communion. It's the same Greek word that's used to describe Holy Communion, the communion that we have with the Lord. And what he's saying is we have this, um, uh, this koinonia with the Father and with his son Jesus, and now this koinonia also extends out to others. So there is, so to speak, a kind of two-dimensional thing. This is actually the logo from our, uh, my congregation back in Washington State. But I share it because what I appreciate about it is it's, it's kind of a stylized version of a, of a tree, is that it's both that reaching up to the Lord, but also reaching out. Just like a tree is both um, growing upwards, but also branching outwards. And that's a, a wonderful picture, I think, of the, the life of faith and this koinonia, this communion that we have with Christ. It has those two dimensions to it. It's not only a communion and fellowship with him, but also with one another in the body of Christ. That's why I love our great Lutheran, not just Lutheran, but potlucks, right? You know, when we have potlucks, to me, it's a wonderful picture of the body of Christ coming together. Like, we can't have our best potlucks if we don't have, you know, Grandma Schmidt's Jello mold. And if we don't have, you know, uh, Nancy's... Uh, bars that she makes and all the desserts, basically. Um, the casseroles, it's like bringing bring that together is a picture of how within the body of Christ, within that fellowship, that communion, we all make contributions. We're stronger as a body because of it. And then having been built up together as his body, we go out into the world. That having received his gifts, we share those gifts with others. And so this is the last thought I want to leave with you with. Is the last few weeks we've been talking about the worship service, and next week we'll do, um, move on to something a little bit different for our closing week. Um, Martin Luther would say, uh, when we come to the divine service, when we come to our worship service, we ought to say to ourselves when we come in, dear God, I've got an empty sack. Okay? So we just had uh, Halloween a couple of weeks ago, right? And we, you have your empty sack. And he'd say, you come in to the divine service, you come into the worship service, and you're like, God, I've got an empty sack. And he says, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, here, take my name and put that in your sack. And then there's the words of absolution, the spoken forgiveness of the Lord. Put that into your sack. And then there's, we hear the scripture read, God's word and his promises. We put that in the sack as well. And we have it uh, applied and announced in the sermon. Put that in there. His body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Put that in there as well. His blessing, his benediction. Put that into your sack as well. So that then... As we go out from this place, now you've got a sack full of forgiveness and mercy and promises. And then what happens? You go to work and you've got a, a co-worker who's, who's having a, a tough day of it. Like, hey, I've got some mercy for you that I received. You share that from the sack. Or you're talking with your spouse and you need to forgive each other. You're like, oh, I think I've got some of that in the sack too. I need to share some of that. And we go throughout our week and those very things that we have received now we share with others. It's that rhythm of receiving and responding. And lo and behold, we get to another Lord's Day and my sack's empty. Well, as well it should be. We're using that up. And he continues to refill and replenish us with his grace. That's the rhythm of faith, and that's what we're seeing. Next week, then, uh, I want to tie a bow a little bit on our, our study and our, our roots of faith. We'll look a little bit into the church year, talk about some of this symbolism that we have of our faith and how that also carries and conveys what we believe 
about God and what he has done for us. Sound good? All right. Thank you so much, guys, for being here and for participating.